Ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, I would like to welcome you to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. I am your host, Kelly KFM Meyer, and I consider myself lucky that any of you are even here. In January 2020, I began writing a book outlining all the gory mistakes that I had made since my wife and I founded our brewery eight years earlier. The second edition of that book is at 57,000 words and available on Amazon, both in Kindle and paperback formats. Please check it out, pick it up, read it, share it with a friend. The show has the same name as that book simply because my goal here is to help my guests to experience the same catharsis I did after laying my story out in public, and because I know that the lessons I wrote about were only the tip of an enormous iceberg. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe, like, write a review, share with a friend. Trust me, it all really helps. In this podcast, I will interview people in and around the beer business to uncover the mistakes, the pitfalls, and the hardships that all of us poor souls in the brewing industry have had the misfortune to experience. My guests will autopsy dead and dying breweries, break down the science of brewing, and dissect the art of marketing. I'll talk to distributors, retailers, beer writers, even a fan or two. Hell, I'll shove a mic in front of anyone I think can make you better in your business. This is open and honest conversation packed with emotion and sincerity, and hopefully, a little bit of fucking vulgarity. I want to thank you for joining my guests and I on this journey, and I truly hope together that we are able to teach you and your loved ones how not to start a damn brewery. My guest today is none other than Chris Jones. He founded a scrappy little boutique beer distributor called Wandering Boots Beverage Distribution down in old Houston, Texas. But Houston is a city over 8 million people, over 50 breweries, and are only around four beer distributors. So on paper, Wandering Boots should have been poised for greatness. But Chris is one of those guys that when you first meet him, you immediately know two things. One, he is a really fucking nice guy. And two, this industry is going to eat his lunch. And unfortunately, that's exactly what wound up happening. He was a school teacher back in 2012 when his uncle said something like, Hey, you and your wife want to do a beer distribution business in Texas? And to which Chris said something like, well, heck yeah, man. So he admits to having no idea or experience in the industry, just like most of us starting out. But he, his wife, and the rich uncle figured the stacks of the uncle's cash would give them a long enough runway to figure it out. So Chris's now ex-wife and co-founder had a real job, so the day-to-day operations fell to him. So Chris hit up Google and read everything he could, but that didn't answer all of his questions. So he went to breweries and... Asked some questions and, you know, kind of, how do you, how do you run a distribution company? And so it was a lot of learning curves, especially in, in Texas with the TABC and how many licenses and hoops they make you drum through. And then the city of Houston, how many hoops they make you jump through to open up a business. And especially something with alcohol based, it's finding a warehouse took us a lot longer than we thought. But we burned a lot of capital up in the beginning, just trying to get a building secured and then the licenses secured and everything secured. So... That was the hardest part, I think, at the beginning was trying to find something to get your feet on the ground and get your feet wet because the regulations of how many feet you can be from a school, front door to front door, and you know, we had a lot of properties that you know, we're talking five or six feet, and they're like, nope, you can't be here because there's a school or a mental health hospital right there, and you're like, it's five feet, and we turn the door a little bit, can you? Yeah, right. Ours is actually similar, so we are whatever the distance is, and now yep. I forget, from a church mm-hmm. uh, and a school. So it's a church school. Oh, um, great. But it's the back of the building, so they count front door to front, front door. Front door to front door. And because of that, we're fine. You're we lucky. Yeah. You're very lucky. We had a, there was one building that would have been fantastic. Refrigeration was already built in, everything front door to front door. We are like, we're going to have to rent the other side of the building for us to be able to do it because we fall on line right at the school mm. to the front door. So 
That was <laughs> so. That was a. I spent a lot of time driving circles and circles and circles and circles around Houston trying to find us a warehouse space. And did you have an idea in your head of how much space you wanted to get, or uh, was that in the business plan? In the the originally was uh, the, the thought process was after talking to to the, uh, Jeff, which is Mary's uncle, and I said, "Hey, you want to start about two anywhere between two and five thousand? Okay, two thousand square feet, five thousand square feet. Ref, you know, air conditioned or cooled. You know, refrigeration would have been an ideal, but." That was hard to come by. Still hard to come by in most places. Yeah. Um, so we found a couple of places, and you start saying the words alcohol, and a lot of people said, mm, not interested. So they wouldn't even rent to you? Wouldn't even rent to us. Um, and then we had the problem. We found a couple of places, and then the door-to-door issue happened. So complex we ended up in, we actually looked at three other locations prior to getting the warehouse space that we had. But each time that we were trying to get everything figured out and secured, somebody came in and behind us and took it from us. So one was 3000 and I think all the say like, we'll give you the same price at 5000 Well, let's go look at that. It's not quite what we want. There's more office space that we need, but for the same price, I guess it's okay. And then by the time we got that all processed, oh, no, we gave it to somebody else. Well, let's go over to this building and try this building. And it ended up being just shy of 10000 I think, with square feet when we opened up our the doors finally, in a small little warehouse space. Or office space, but then the warehouse itself was a little over 8,000 square feet, I think, if I remember right, right at 1,000 square feet of office and a little over 8,000 for actual warehouse space, which would have been great 10 years <laughs> into it. Right. There was a lot of space in the beginning. I there was a lot of space. So did you, in, in Texas, my understanding is that you can't get your actual license from TABC until you've got a brewery partner that has Correct. signed a contract. So, so were you it, doing all this prior to having one? We were doing it all kind of at the same time. We were attempting to, to, to find a brewery partner. You, know, they're, they're, you have to put your cart before your horse. So you have to have an address, and then you have to have a brewery partner, and then you can apply to get your license. So we were you know, kind of putting out feelers. We had been talking to some of the big guys trying to figure out who was already on a distribution company or who already, how did that work? You know, how did a distribution contract even look? And so we were reaching out. Or I'm not even sure how they were found. Maybe we started a Facebook, our Facebook pages and we were trying to figure out who what we were doing. Um, we actually, someone reached out to us and uh, great people down at Fetching Lab were like, hey, we're interested in starting a brewery. Come talk to us. And Brett and Teresa are fantastic people. And we're like, sure, why not? And they're like, hey, by the way, you know, come on, talk to us and come to our birthday party. Because their birthdays fall within a day of each other or on the same day. Summer were close, but they always do a joint birthday party. We're like, okay, that's kind of cool. We'll come show it. Yeah, we didn't realize that we were going to walk into, you know, a party of like 50 people. And we're like, hey, by the way, these people are going to talk about selling our beer. Huh? <laughs> so it was a little overwhelming. But, you know, we, we sat down and talked to them. And, you know, they had some really good things. And, they're like, okay, you're starting, we're starting. This might be a good drug to grow us both. So we were lucky enough to get them and figured out what a, a distribution contract was supposed to look like and how it was supposed to work. And you know, we worked through a lot of that you know, using business models. We, um, While we were kind of thinking about how to do this, we actually uh, there's programs with multiple universities, usually in the MBA programs, to have the opportunity to work with grad students on business plans and building different kind of programs and things along those ways. So we actually had two different groups, a group at Purdue and a group at University of Texas do business plans and growth potentials and a, a lot of different things for us to kind of help us plan for the long term. So we've been working with them along with this, gone up to Austin a couple times, sat through a couple of meetings with some of the, the, the brewery industry people and just kind of asked a bunch of questions. So it's 
once we finally got Fetching Lab signed on, we finally got our building, and then we finally got the doors open sometime in mid of September, I think, or September of 2014, I think it was, we opened the doors. 14, huh? I think so, 14 or 15. I don't think I realized that Fetching Lab was uh, that early as well yeah. to the game. I actually reached out to Teresa and Brett, and I'll be interviewing them as well. No shit. Um, <laughs> not, not about you, about them, but I'll, I'm sure I'll ask. So. But I know... Like everybody, we all relationships come and go up and down. So yeah. I'm sure. So when they cuss me out, you know, at least tell them, say I'm sorry. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> all right. My guess was 2013, September 2013, would be my guess of when we did it all. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you go about finding your team? As far as who was gonna sell uh, beer for you and who was gonna be the manager, I, I assume that was you. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very interesting. You know, luckily I'd had some experience in my previous roles. You know, I was a movie theater manager for many years before college, and all through college I did retail and restaurant. So I've had managerial experience before. So I was like, I've done the HR thing before. So you know, we put out a couple of job things out there and on Indeed and Facebook and a couple of different places, and we landed our first guy. Actually, we were like, all right, who are we going to hire? And Brett and Teresa is one of their, one of, I would call him, a, I'd say, a friend or a mentor or a learning guy. He was kind of helping out the brewery part-time to help brewing. He actually was our very first hire. We interviewed him, and he came in, and you know, he knows a lot about beer. He has some contacts. He was working as a bartender in downtown or in, down in the Heights or Midtown area, and he's like, I know some people, and I know some beer buyers. I'm like, all right, let's go. Cool. Let's do this. So we hired Aaron as our first our first driver, our first sales guy, and I did all the driving and I did all the deliveries. So we were selling one brand, you know, Fetching Lab was all only in uh, kegs. Um, I started in Slims and then we added some half barrels down the road. But we started Slims delivering in the back of my car. But we didn't have any refrigeration, so I went to an auction. There's a great place down by Hobby Airport. They auction off old kitchen stuff sometimes, and I got a three door refrigerator for 450 bucks. Really? Put it in the, uh, the the brewery, or put it in the warehouse. Uh, I actually told the brewers, hey, this is a great place to go. But uh, that, that refrigerator ran up until probably six months before we closed our doors, <laughs> before the Freon had busted a leak and no longer worked. Uh, we weren't, It started out as our keg cooler, and it worked its way into our sample cooler, and then just kind of sat there and died on us. But um, 450 bucks was a pretty good investment, you know, and all I had to do was rent a trailer to pick it up myself. Yeah, not bad. Not bad until you had to drill out a bio-shelf <laughs> <laughs> and unload that sucker off of a U-Haul trailer. But that's how we started. Aaron did a really good job of, of and, and knowing he was, you know, he's friends with Brett and Teresa and, and the beer that they did, he, he was very good at that because he already knew what it was. He was helping out brew when they were oh, brewing sure. stuff. So he, he was good to help on that point because you didn't have to train him a lot on what the beers were. It was, you just have to go out and sell it, which is definitely not an easy thing to do <laughs> i'm not a salesperson i've never sold anything in my life i couldn't sell ice to somebody in the desert I'm not that good of a person when it comes to that kind of stuff but you got stuck being a sales manager basically i got right? to be stuck being sales everything so yeah. between delivering and trying to make the contacts delivering the beers i knew nothing about cleaning beer lines i knew nothing about installing beer lines i barely knew nothing about any side of that when we started so a lot of self-taught i had you know aaron and i Another auction, we bought one of the dispensers, you know, from an old restaurant that closed, and I basically took it apart to try to figure out how to build it. And I put all new lines, and I, I taught myself how to clean lines. I went down to Brett and Teresa's and actually cleaned their lines for the first time to just to teach myself. So I had to, I had to do it all, and that was one of those eye challenging things. I like, I like challenges. 
I also like to know kind of what I'm doing. I like instructions. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of instructions in that business. You know, the big guys are not really willing to open up their minds and their experiences to talk to you if you're not one of the big big names. You know, if you're not a Miller Coors or an AB guy, they're like, eh. If you find my stuff, call me. Yeah, well, you're the competition too. That's right. So. I was the competition. Like, and I wasn't just a fly on the wall to them, but there still was one of those things you're like, just a little bit of information, a little, little bit of advice? No, nah, not so much. And so I don't exactly remember how this worked out, but at some point, Mary also started working there more. So Mary but, was because she was the one that could drink beer. Yeah. She was the one that did the primary when it came down to the contracts and signing and, and drinking the beer and making the initial contacts. That was all Mary's job. So she was the one that kind of targeted some of the new suppliers she, that you were going to bring on? Yes. So we, she, she was the one that did most of that. You know, if we, we, told, we talked to people, ran across people. It was always a contact. Hey, you know, this is what we're doing. If you're interested, give her a call. Call me, and I'm just going to pass the phone to her. So you might as well just call her and make it easy. Sure. Because um, that was her side of the business. That was something that she would do. She, she built the relationships. She's the one that worked the contracts. And she did a very good job. At it. I'm, that's one area that... You know, I probably wish should have paid more attention, but the 900 other things that was going on in my back of my mind, just I didn't have the capacity to do it at the time. So essentially, she would find you some new suppliers to uh, bring in inventory, and it was your job to figure out where to sell them? Pretty much. Right. Pretty much. Do you have any idea kind of how long it was before you brought on another supplier after Fetching Lab? Um, I couldn't even tell you who our other one after Fetching Lab was at this point. I know. Yeah, I could uh, guess, but I couldn't tell you either. <laughs> I remember... I really only remember. I'll take that back. I can us? tell you exactly who it was. We were at the Extreme Beer Fest in Boston. Yeah. And you want to talk about funky? That was a <laughs> funky. That was a funky experience. Again, I can't drink anything. This is the first time I'm really experiencing that. And everything in there was supposed to be extreme: bourbon, bacon, barrel yeah. fat beer, and you know, citrus martini beer. And high alcohol, some of them too. Yes, very, very off the wall kind of stuff. Pina colada stuff. There was a lot of interesting beers. And then in the back of this beer hall in Boston, there was this company out of Rhode Island called Foolproof. And I do remember Foolproof. Foolproof. Yeah. Mary went back to chit-chat with them and taste their beers. And again, I'm just kind of wandering around with a chicken my head cut off because there was nothing I could drink there. And she comes back and says, hey, they're going to have a conversation with us. We're going to talk about bringing them in. And da-da-da. I said, okay, let's, let's whatever. So they were actually our second brew. And they had some interesting beers. I mean, they were... East Coast style, and it was not quite what the industry was looking for here in Houston. It was very, very new, so it was a lot of the hop heads. They were looking for the power punch in the face with the hop. But they had some really good, you know, they had a very mild IPA that did okay. I think it was called Backyard. And then they had a Rain Cloud Porter and a Saison of some sort. And at some point they brought on their, their um, peanut butter porter that we actually was probably one of our number one sellers for them because... They used a natural peanut butter powder that had been featured on Shark Tank from oh, a peanut really? company. A peanut yeah. company had been featured on Shark Tank, and their peanut butter powder they added to their porter and made the peanut butter. So their names were a little bit different, whereas it wasn't local. And at the time, local was the number one seller. So it was very hard to get them into suppliers because mm. nobody knew who it was. You know, it was very difficult to, hey, take this brewery that you have never heard of from way out on the east coast that you'll probably never visit and sell it here in houston when everyone's looking for something that's you know down the street and was that your job to get it into the chain to get the authorizations or did that they... was we didn't the chains was hard we didn't get the chains until almost the end of our, our, our distribution we did a lot of local 
you know, we, we started mostly draft. They were our very first package, and we didn't do so hot with them. I know that they were also the very first beer that we destroy, had to destroy because we just didn't didn't do well. Um, it sat so long, and you know, the very first time TABC came out to do a destruction, uh, unfortunately, I'm dumping kegs of that stuff because mm. I just couldn't sell it. Um, no fault to them. It's just it didn't do well here in Houston. So when it came to the chains, we had, by that time, we had hired another person. Uh, I believe Sean was our second hire. We hired Sean to come on, and, and he had had some package sales. He had worked for Houston Distributing Company, and he had had some package sales experience before. So he got us into our little independent convenience store kind of places, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, little one-off, mom-and-pop kind of places um, to kind of get us started. You know, we kind of had the HEB route, try to figure that out. We tried to get into a couple of places that um, we probably could have sold more beer, but they weren't interested in making money, so... Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. across the bow, I like that. Now, I know speaking of which, we're kind of jump around, but I think wasn't there an issue for a long time where you guys weren't able to get into Specs, which is one of the bigger liquor stores Correct. too? And to the and to this day, I don't think we've ever gotten into Specs. Really, you don't, I don't we remember. We never got into Specs. Okay. Um, actually, when we had your beers, when we finally, I think you were a third one that we brought on. We were able to get into Total Wine when they came into the state. We were able to get into some of our little places, but Specs never took us on, took us serious, and they never took us in. So anytime you came to town, you know, we got into Whole Foods before we got into anywhere else. We were able to get into Whole Foods, but you had to actually drive your beers into Specs, which was I a little weird. That. Yeah, like all right, well, you have this and this, and you've got to go here. But they never took us very serious, and you know, they weren't super interested in the downtown store of, of adding too much more. I mean, they were. They knew that they were the beer hub of, of Houston and everything that came through Houston had to come through them if, if people wanted it. And so they were very select on who they chose. And they took to say they played favorites is, is, is probably a very good, solid statement because if you didn't help them, they weren't going to help you. And you know, we didn't have anything to help them. So they weren't going to help us try to get things on the shelves because we didn't have anything special to go, hey, you're the only ones going to get this. It's so. tough when you're a startup and you don't have the depth. Exactly. Of the- uh, even even just the depth of the drop, like if you if you go to that store when you're mm-hmm. talking about the downtown zero zero, and you go in the back to make a delivery, there is never a time when they're just all standing around. Yeah. There's constantly a vendor of some sort running in and out back through there. That they're, they're like shipping and receiving in the back is constantly busy. I believe it. It's one store, so I do kind of get the idea that they're like, well, I don't want to add another distributor. Right. Although that obviously makes it harder for all the independent and unique yep. stuff, but. The, the logic, at least in that store, makes sense. So Yeah, I, yeah, I can totally see that. Definitely a challenge. So let's kinda, I'm going to go through some of the mistakes that I made and um, see if you can point out maybe what I did wrong or what somebody else can do better. <laughs> okay. um, one of the first ones I have in there is mistake one was focus over quality over marketing and branding. And, and that was one of those things for me, and I'm still this way to my fault, that I think that the best beer should win. And so if you make a high quality product in a moderately decent package that it should fucking sell and it doesn't yep. more often than not, it's the package that sells a mediocre beer and not vice versa. But yep. I was curious and obviously Mary handled the majority of what kind of came in, but you know, did you guys look for like, like sharp packaging? Um, was she putting a lot of emphasis on the quality of the beer? There was a lot of emphasis played on quality. And that was the number one thing is because we didn't want to do what the other ones, uh, other distributors did. They just said, okay, we're going to take your beers and we're going to sell the whatever's best and everything else can sit in, in your portfolio. It's not going to matter to us. We want to focus across 
everything we sold was was quality. You know, the Wandering Boots came from the, you know, we're going to travel the country looking for the best beers, we're going to bring the best beers to Texas. That was the whole concept behind Wandering Boots. That's where the logo came from, all that kind of stuff came together for us to travel. When we would travel to the different beer shows, we went to Seattle, we went to Great American Beer Fest in Denver. We was always looking for somebody to bring back into Houston. So when we did the Houston there in Texas stuff, we always wanted to go. It's always quality over, over quantity. You know, you can give me so much, but if you're just putting out a mediocre beer, that's not going to help us. You know, we had that same thing. It wasn't really about the package. You know, there was some fun packaging out there, but it wasn't really one of those things that we really focused on. It was more about the quality. And I think you're right. You know, you can have the greatest beer in the world, but if you don't have something that catches somebody's eye, it's not going to sell, no matter how hard you try, until you get it in their hands and until they try it and they still become excited about it. Fun names are great, but if it just kind of blends into the shelf no one's going to think anything of it you know it's not going to have a second look at it i'm looking for i know that's good because of packaging or i've done you know my research on it or you know there's been a it's been shoved down my throat on tv and radio a thousand (laughs) times you know that's what i'm going to go buy because that's what i've been told to buy so i would actually consider this to be the hill i'm willing to die on yeah so even like i said today um, i understand the need for packaging and i have revamped my uh, labels and logos and things but at the end of the day I'm more concerned about the quality of my beer than I am about the um, label art. And I understand that there's a really good chance that my brewery is going to die because of that. But my question to you is if you were to go back, and I know you wouldn't, but if you were to go back and do a distribution house again, not a chance in hell. Would you change that theory? And do you Uh, think that the marketing is so much to the point that you really Knowing what I know now, uh, that is exactly, you got to be. You got to think outside of what the brewery is. Yes, you're going to make some really good beer, and that's your job is to make what you think is the top quality. But on the flip side of it, how am I going to get it into consumers' hands? What's going to catch their eye? That's got to be something that if you're looking at trying to sell your beer out to the stable. If I'm going to look at a yellow can, I'm going to look at 47 yellow cans. What's your yellow can going to do for me? Or if I'm looking for a bottle, what's going to catch my eye and go, hey, that looks cool. I want to, I want to try it. I know a lot of wine shoppers, and I'm one of them. I don't pick the wine. I'm, I know what I want to drink. I want to drink Malbec. What label catches my eye? There may be a $300 bottle and maybe a $5 bottle. I'm a cheapskate, so the $5 bottle, is which, <laughs> which $5 bottle is going to look, the, which label looks the coolest to me? Which is one of the fun things about that industry. If you, if you Google it, which you said you love Google, Google wine label decision. And there are a myriad of articles talking about how terrible that is at finding their best uh-huh. wine. Like, for some reason in wine, that's a great way to get shitty wine sold. And in beer, it's just the only way to get any beer sold. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, you are correct there. <laughs> so marketing it does play into labels is a very big deal. And you can look at stepping back from it you know, after being out of it for four or so years. I can step back and I can tell you what's been, you know, you can walk the aisles of HEB and you can pick out the ones that are spending money on their marketing and you can see the ones that aren't spending money on the marketing they're trying to put good beer out but you know they're at the back of the shelf or on the clearance section or they're not even there anymore because that was something that people are, are first thing that they look at you know the first thing they see that they they eat with their eyes they drink with their eyes everything comes from your eyes so if you don't have something that's going to catch their attention they're not going to be interested i mean until you get it open unless you're going to open it up and do tastings in the store with them and go hey that's a really good beer you should do, take it home and they're like oh yeah that's a really good beer let me take that home with me you know they're going to drink it with their eyes first yep yeah unfortunately sometimes, unfortunately but. that's right you know because you miss out on a lot of really good beers or a lot of good things when you don't first impression is yeah it's just another one of those yeah right right the second mistake that i put in the book was start small and build 
Obviously, you started with a lot of space, uh-huh. but not so much with a lot of cold storage space and maybe not the equipment that you needed. So ultimately, you had a big building, but not probably enough in there. So in, in your situation specifically, what were you missing that you needed? I will tell you, I paid all, and I'm paying for it to this day. There's a lot <laughs> of things. A pallet jack is an amazing thing. Let me tell you, carrying pallets or carrying kegs on your back by yourself with no dollies or anything up a up a driveway and hill. Nah, you're a big um, dude. Yeah, I'm a big dude, but then you start carrying 15, 20 of those by yourself, you get tired real fast. A forklift. We had, First time we had package goods, we didn't have a forklift. We unloaded trucks. You know, I loaded up the van. Someone would load it in the vehicle for me. I'd get it back and I'd hand take it out of that vehicle. Did, did you at the end have a forklift? At the end, I don't thank that. God, yeah. <laughs> because I couldn't unload eighteen uh, wheelers. We said, you know, last couple of months we were able to bring in an eighteen wheeler with full of beer, and if I hadn't had a pallet or a forklift, I'd, I'd still be unloading them suckers today. Uh, today, <laughs> I'd still be there trying to get that damn truck unloaded. You know, so there's little things like that that you don't take into account. A, a good dolly is extremely important. If you don't have a dolly. You know, especially if you're hand- throwing half barrels around. If you have a dolly that's not designed for half barrels, you're not going to put two, two half barrels on there. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, if they didn't have the angle or the, the, the angle. The exactly. The circle angle to it, man. That was the best per- $300. Or I bought two dollies for like 300 bucks, and it's the best purchase I've ever made <laughs> to this day. <laughs> because I was able to put a half barrel, two half barrels on there and walk them into, a, in, into a, in an establishment. Or put a half barrel, two, ha- two singles on there and go... Let's go. Let's do this. Yeah. So little things like that, you know, pallet jack. You know, we went to the auction, bought broken ones. Didn't realize they were broken until we got them back. So it was forty dollars on the drain. But found an equipment place, got one for two hundred fifty dollars. Two hundred fifty dollars is a lot of money for a startup. But you know, having little things like that, a pallet jack or things to be able to move stuff around, is extremely important. Brett and Teresa had a their cold storage boxes outside. You get the truck only so close, but we we hand walked a lot of those. Mm. I spent a lot of nights, a lot of late nights, loading up beer into, you know, into pickup trucks and into refrigerator vans or into cargo vans and things like that just because that's what we had. You know, we yeah. didn't have, you know, having a cargo van is a huge deal. You know, we didn't buy anything. We rented a lot. You know, first started out, man, I got to rent the biggest cargo van, a refrigerated cargo van I could, and, you know, $300, $300 for delivering a couple of keg cases of beer and a couple of kegs just didn't make a lot of sense so there's a lot of mistakes i made at the front part you know not just using the truck or not just using my you know nissan road got a lot of mileage out of that sucker <laughs> you know my best friend works for for car dealership when i trade that sucker in they gave me 750 dollars just because it was a friend's business. just to be nice yeah. just to be nice because they were going to be uh, less than they're like we're going to have to have you pay me i'm like come on but things like that you know matters to have spend a little bit of money make sure you have the right equipment because it, in the long run you're going to need that kind of stuff to, to make sure that you're helping you know your whoever your end result is you know, if you're, you're selling to a bar they're going to want you to put the kegs in a certain place or you know I'm, hey i'm gonna need you to carry this at the back of that cooler well there's you no know, room for me to carry half barrel from the parking lot all the way there and by the time i get there you want me to lift it over 47 other kegs <laughs> i don't know about all that <laughs> but i did it you know, and little things, you know, as a distributor, when we first opened, you know, we opened the restaurant up and they're like, well, where's your taps? And where's your, yeah, your faucets um, and everything? And the, uh, the regulators and the, this. And I'm like, where's the Sankey? You're supposed to supply that. I am? Shit. That God Farm Boy was literally around the corner from this thing. I can step in there and pick up 
pieces I needed because didn't know what I needed. You know, so little little equipment like that. A keg cleaner. Didn't know what the heck that was until they were like, hey, are you going to clean my lines? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I, I got a brush. Yeah. I got a brush. I'll take it apart. And I'm, you know, I'm OCD, so if I'm taking something apart, I'm going to take the whole thing apart. I'm going to break it all the way down as far as I can and put it all back together. And I'm going to spend more time than I really should making sure that it was good because you know, we were extension, and that's just who I am. And I'm going to do the best that I can, make sure that if I'm selling a product for you, you can't be there. So I want to make sure that your product was represented the best that it possibly could. And if it was a dirty line, you know, there was a seal or something that had something and it was causing the beer to taste funky, that's not putting the best foot forward. So I would, I would take that extra time. But, you know, little pieces of equipment like that were required to make sure that you could do that. Little little things like that, you know, you made mistakes of buying, too, running a big, too big of a truck, throwing the back of this and things like that. So, yes, you need to invest in equipment, but you got to make sure that you know right equipment and don't try to size up too fast. You know? Well, that's a good point. And um, definitely one of the things that I address in the book is kind of how to decide early on what you need versus trying to get money later. Yeah which I think is an excellent place to uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, I would like to kind of go through that with how, since you didn't have the equipment that you needed in the beginning, how you finance getting it in the end. So Sounds like a plan. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right. So we're back. The easiest way to do it would be to borrow all the money you ever need right up front, get one loan for it, dump it in there, or one investor. Uh, and that almost never happens. So clearly that didn't work for you either. And there was multiple times that you needed more money for either things or operations. What did you guys do and how did you handle that? So we started out trying to do it ourselves. You know, we Meaning just savings? Just savings and family money. Which okay. Most of it stayed in, you know, most everything we did, everything we took out ended up being mostly family money. Um, not until we got toward the end did we try using short-term learn, loan kind of companies and, 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 and things like that. You know, we put in money. Um, I cashed out my TRS. I put everything that I had put for retirement. I cashed all of it out to put into the brewery. You know, Mary's family put invested in us. Mary's sister invested in us. The uncle invested in us. All the upstart capital came from us. We, we worked real hard to try to stretch that as long as we could before starting to try to add more money. You know, Mary, you know, took out more and more from her investments. And I said, I took, I, I put everything I had in it. There, I, there was no more coming from me. I put literally everything I had, my entire life savings, into the into the business. So wait, so you did you put everything you had in the light in the business right away, and she didn't right away. She did later. Well. There, I didn't have a whole lot to put in regardless. Ah, all right, <laughs> let's, there put, we go. let's be real. Mary put way more money, physical cash money. She put more physical cash money in than I did. I just, I mean, my, my TRS, I had eight years of teaching wasn't a whole lot. My twenty twenty two thousand dollars $22,000 or whatever I had. Sure. But I put it in there. I put more sweat equity into it. She put in more fi- actual physical cash and, and the investment from her family and, and things along those lines. So as we got to the point at the end, like I said, we, it took us a while to get rock and rolling. Sales would come in. Things got going. Sales didn't quite make what we needed to continue to bring in stock. And then so we started having to look at how do we how do we make more sales or how do we bring in, do we need to start stepping up so we can make more sales? And that was the thought process is, you know, we're going to try to bring in another big company so that we could have something. And we did. We, we you know, we, we started to partner with um, Good Ass Beer. They were going to be our workhorse. Neat concept, cheap beer, put it in the market. We could flood the market. It could be something we could stand on so that we could actually sell the beer we wanted to sell. I'm not saying that they, their, their beer was crap, you know, bad or anything like that, but it was a cheap price point. You know, I could buy a 1050 for a case of 
36 and then turn around and sell it for $18 and still make a profit on it. And the, the package stores could make a, a killing on it. You'd sell it at four ninety nine, which we did when we, we got it out in the market real first. And we were killing with it. The good ass, the beer, the marketing sold itself, a white can, black marketing with a donkey on it. People were like, oh, that's a pretty good beer. We'll, we'll buy it and it's cheap. I know some of them were, we were doing package deals, you know, buy 50 and you get it at a certain price. And let's do this. I mean, I'll sell you a pallet, basically a cost almost. You know, we were trying to move beer as fast as we could. So that was what we were trying to do so that we could step up and get a bigger, you know, purchase refrigeration at the end and, and, and all these other things to try to keep us going so that we looked like we were on the right step on the, in the right direction to be able to bring in that extra money and get the bigger investments to be able to hang on toward the end there. Because that the mistakes we made early was, was spending our capital too fast. But most of everything we had, we were self-invested. You know, and we had to ask a couple of times. And we said, we tapped us, you know, two years and we tapped us. We, we tapped family, we tapped everybody we could. And we started doing the, the business loans. We got something through the bank and then national funding, you know, the, the short-term kind of stuff with the high interest rates and you have to pay it back so quick. So we'd have stuff to cover payroll, but then, you know, we got into trouble that we weren't being able to pay it back in time. So sure. it, was, it was on the way down. So you got a real high interest rate and it's a short-term loan. Now it's how they get you. We'll give you so much up front and then you have to pay us back. And then if you don't pay us back, we're going to kill you with interest. And it did. Sounds like a mess. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> we'll probably get back to some of that a little bit later um, as well. But I wanted to talk about one of the things that you guys did do is you hired a sales manager towards the end, correct? Correct. We did try um, to hire somebody, you know, toward the end to kind of drive it a little harder than what I was doing. And how did you find him? One of the business partners of the unc Jeff, the uncle. Oh, really? We were bringing him in to start pushing. He was the job, his job, he'd been doing sales for a long time. Never done alcohol sales, we had done sales. And his job at the very end was to push, 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 push. If people weren't selling, he was supposed to fire them, fire new people. He was brought in like the last two or three months. Hatchet so. man? He was a hatchet man. He right. was he was trying to save us. Um, I'm not sure he actually got a chance to really do anything because by that time we were already starting to bleed, right? Um, bleed out. But Jr. Jr. and Sean basically were our on camp. One was on on premises, one was off premises. Jr. handed basically our box stores. He was the one that did all the stuff for HEB. He did all the stuff for Whole Foods and for um, Total Wine and Goody Goody. He was trying to get us into Goody Goody, but Goody Goody. Literally was across the park of Plus. I still didn't want to buy our beer. It's sad. I was like, I could literally walk it across to you. Why don't you want to buy our beer? They were more into the wholesales. They wanted the big box stuff, big name, big kind of, you know, domestic kind of stuff. But when we brought JR, he he helped us get into those box stores. He helped us do the things that I didn't know how to do. You know, he worked a lot with, you know, when I when we got him, when we interviewed him, and we hired him from away from used equipment, construction equipment sales, I believe, if I'm hmm. not mistaken. And we got him in there and he started building the relationships and it's like, look, if you take it and you run it in the big boxes, that's what you're going to do. You're going to get us in the big box. And that's how we got into Total Wine. That's how we got into the, the HEB. So that was all uh, from him. I will give him 100% credit of that. I don't like it because I had to go do all the deliveries and I'm like, I've never done beer stocking in my life, but I'm going to figure this out. And we, by that time we had hired a driver who had worked for uh, AB and Bev and then the Silver Eagles in Houston. You know, he was a good kid. He was, to this day, I'm not sure what um, Will's doing, but, you know, he was probably the best hire. We ever. He called us for two weeks straight while we were out of town asking about his job and we could interview <laughs> with him. I'm like, you know what? 
that's the way that he's he, he's our guy because he knows how he's doing. So he was able to clean lines. He was did all our deliveries. He was he was probably the best hire we've ever made. Jared was the second best, and Sean, I put them two together because they were the only ones that kind of kept us going. Jared got us into the big box, but Sean stuck with us when we were at the lowest of the low, and he just kept doing what he was doing, trying to sell us for a thought for us. I thought he quit and never called us. He hadn't heard from him two months, and I was like, he didn't get his emails. I was like, oh, oh, really? Yeah, he never checked his emails. I was like, well, you didn't show up for this meeting, did you? He goes, I didn't get an email. Come to find out, his email wasn't working. But he, he started we fixed that problem, and he was there and doing a whole lot better. And, but yeah, Jr. did a really good job of pushing us into the box getting us into HEB and understanding how to get into HEBs and how to understand that part of the job because that was very different. Selling to bars is one thing, but selling to a big box store like that, HEBs and, and, and the wine, total wines and how, how that, that business works was very, very different than you know walking into a bar going, hey, I got this keg, you want to buy it? So it's a very, very different story. A little more corporate and specific. And a lot more corporate, a lot more... Sales oriented. A lot more... This is what you need to do. This is how you do. This is how, how we're going to justify. This is how we're going to evaluate you. And if this isn't working for us, we're going to try this. And or this is what you have to do now. And you know, all the, there are a lot more hoops to jump through. Once you get in, though, it tends to be a little easier to stay there. But Very true. Once you kind of get yourself a shelf, shelf space and you built those relationships, you know, it, it's a whole lot. You're right. It's a whole lot easier to stay there. It's a whole rotate, lot easier. They don't rotate quite as much yep. as the draft line. Correct. Do. A draft line can change in two days, I think, on the beer. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the mistakes I put in the book was brew whatever is popular instead of what is profitable. So is it safe to say that the good ass beer was the highest volume product that you guys had towards the end? Towards the end, yes, it was definitely very high volume. Like I said, we we, we moved it pretty well. We did. We had to to work a little harder to get it because you know it wasn't. It was a cheap beer, but it was one of those things that well, what about this packaging or what about this packaging? People were asking it for a different packaging, and, and they had one package. It was. 36 loose cans. That's it. Oh, really? Loose cans in the box. So we'd take it into the store, and they're like, well, is it a six-pack version? So we were making six-packs on the spot for them. And so they finally said, hey, guys, we need you to make them six-packs. Okay, we'll make them six-packs. So we started getting six-packs. It was great. It helped our business a lot. Well, now we wanted it in a 24-ounce. Galveston Island was the one that requested that because you could walk the oh, strand with right. it. Oh, right. We wanted 24-ounce, and I can sell it for a dollar. Hey, guys, this is what they want. <laughs> Help us. And so they, they they helped us. They put it in a 24-ounce can for us, and we got a few of those out before we, you know, we closed the doors. But popularity definitely drove it. Go back to the draft side. There was times that, are we not going to sell the, the normal stuff? Because what was it when the fruit beers came around? You know, Fetching Lad had a blueberry. No, was there blueberry? Something with blueberry. Blueberry, blueberry cream ale. That's yeah. what it was. Hit the market, and we sold out of it instantaneously. And so they ran it, and they ran it for the summertime, and then they stopped. And then when it stopped, it became the popular beer, and everybody wanted it. And when they tried to carry it back, it wasn't necessarily the popular beer anymore. Mm. So we tried to ride the wave, but you know, we rode the wave, and then when you miss, the, when you take the take it off the wave, it's like, well, now I can't bring it back. So popularity was definitely one of those things that you've got to find whatever's popular. Yes, if you want to make more money, you want to make a lot of money. You want to make money on top of things. You got to have what's popular. But what do you do after it's done? Was the hard part making sure that they understood hey this is popular now but you like what they did now come try their their stable brands come try their amers come try their wheat come try these things so it was a it was a very difficult balancing act sometimes to make sure that the, the people we were selling to understood that hey this might be popular right now but in two two weeks where i've got an excess of it and nobody wants to buy it you're like well shit now what do i do with it all 
So it's a very the balancing act of going, how much stock do I need or how much inventory do I need? And then how much, what do I backfill with on the backside of the, of the stable stuff of what they're, they're going to brew year round? Did you guys <coughs> start trying to figure Excuse out a me. system for how much to buy or how, how do you pre-sell it or something? We or tried to do the best. We, we tried to pre-sell as much as we could, especially when it was a seasonal item like that or something along those lines. We knew that there was going to be a limited batch. Hey, you know, we've only got 13 kegs of this coming. What do you want? You know, this is what I have. What do you want? We try to do the best of pre-selling. We try not to sit on a lot of our stock, especially, you know, using a, a Black Fury. You put it in three kegs, three slims. I remember it. And I was like, <laughs> hey, we get three slims. This is all we have. Your job is to sell three slims. Hit your number one mark. Who's going to buy it? And we did. And it worked out for two out of the three. We sold two of them and they did. They were like, yes, we want it. As soon as it's available, bring it to us. I don't care what it costs, bring it to us. We had the issue where they thought it was too sour, and you thought it was not, and they never bought your beer again, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It happened. I felt bad. I was like, I have this keg that they took two draws out of, and now i got to take it back to the brewery. And I'm like, I can't sell this anymore. Hopefully you can sell it here at the brewery. We did the best we could to try to pre-sell as much as we could, but fully knowing that we had to have inventory on top of it sometimes if we had a new account or things along those, we had to have something. So there was, I don't want to say there was a formula because there definitely wasn't a formula, but we tried to keep, I had a set number in my head. I'd like to have so many sixels and I'd like to have so many in stock. And when I got down to like the last one, I'd like to say, all right, I need six more of these or I need seven more of these. And then I'd like to keep a rotating stock. Which is very difficult when you're small for a small for a brewer going. Look, I made a batch. You need to come get it. Well, I, I can't sell it right now. It's just not a season for porters or ambers are not what's in season right now. And I've got enough to hold me off. I've got six or eight sixels still sitting there. I can't take your twenty-two sixels of amber. It's not a season for that. It's a summer. It's not. It's not what's selling. Right. Your wheat though, I can. I need more of your wheat. Well, I didn't brew your wheat. That's going to be three weeks out. Well, and by the time I get your wheats. Right. I don't need all 22 again. So it, it's a very inter- it was very difficult at times to actually have a set number because, you know, once we kind of learned what the seasons were, it was a little bit, a little easier, but you never knew what, you know, hey, I need an amber. Why the hell are you ordering an amber now? It doesn't make sense. But, you know, so you had to have some on hand at all times to, to backfill areas that you thought you were going to need it. And sometimes you're like, oh, well, we're out. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. It was, it's a very, very weird Dynamic, you know, you can you know you ask your brewers to make so much, and then if they're not selling it at the tap room, and I can't sell it, and it's just going to sit there and get old. And then you'd say, you know, the big thing is, well, I want the freshest beer, beer possible. Well, everybody wants the fresh beer. That's just not how it works. Sometimes you've got to get, you know, there's a sell by date, or you know, it's dated three months ago. I don't want it. Yeah, well, I can't. I can't help you there. They, they haven't brewed it in three months. It's not that it's. I'm trying to sell you bad beer, and it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But just because it was marked three months ago, it doesn't mean it's a bad beer. It's just that's the last time they brewed it. That's when it's been sitting in the warehouse since then. Because you're the first one to buy it, or that's what I have. That's rotation through. That's what you got. I've had a couple. I had a couple of kegs returned because you know the WIP was three months old. And you should have brewed some before that. It's not my job to brew. I can only sell you what I have in stock. I don't have anything better. Yeah, Sorry. IPAs are tough. They do change after a few weeks, and there mm-hmm. are definitely people that won't buy them after uh, three to four. So correct, and you know we found that sometimes with like a blondine, the longer it sat, people said it tasted better the longer it sat. Some people were like, "No, I want it fresh from the brewery." I'm like, well, "This is what I got." <laughs> right. 
it's one advantage I have is that the, it, if I end up having to buy something back, it's almost always still great. Yep. So uh, uh, that was true. At least it, you know, if we couldn't sell it, we knew at least if we came back to you, you could always do something with. Did you have a system at all where you tried to get breweries to buy back out of date product? We because we were so small, we didn't have that problem a lot. Mm-hmm. I think you're the only one that we had a couple of times that said, "Hey." I'm having a hard time moving this. It just it isn't moving. You know, we've done everything we know how. What can we do to help? Or what can you do to help us? Will you, can you take it back and send it somewhere a different market where it is selling? Let's 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 do an exchange or sell back. You know, in, in draft it's not as common. In package it was a little bit more common. You know, we had to send fetching or not fetching that uh, foolproof. We had to get a, an order of backyard sent back to us because by the time it got to us, it expired. Really. Yeah, so we ended up having in first time instruction that sat in our warehouse for months. And actually, when we finally went out of business, we still had foolproof that had to be destroyed from <laughs> the original the original shipment <laughs> because of the way that you know the, the, the destruction laws are. Yeah, you have to wait for TABC to actually come there and yeah. stuff like that. Well, they're the ones that made that rule. It's That's right. Fault. That's right. And the guy who worked with TABC, he's a super nice guy. He is a very by the book person. The first one and the, and the tenth one. And in between there, you can destroy whatever the hell you want. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. Obviously, you, you have uh, exited the industry, but I am curious from your perspective, based on what you've seen and what you've seen change, let's say we start the timeline in 1980 and go the halfway mark right at when uh, Oscar Blues released uh, Pale Ale in a Can. What do you think the first 44 years in, in American, I would say when Sierra Nevada started, it's when American craft beer kind of began. What do you think that that 44 years is going to be? So 2024, what are we going to have? The craziest prediction. Give me something crazy. Craziest prediction is somebody is going to overtake uh, one of the big names. I wouldn't say Bud Light, but, you know, someone takes out one of those those internationals that isn't doing so hot, Hank. Heineken eats it and somebody takes over and, and takes over that market and becomes the household name. You got your Budweiser, you got your Miller Lite, you got your um, Dos Equis, and now I've got Oscar Blues or <laughs> something along those lines. Somebody takes over one of those big names, becomes the household name for craft. All right. You heard it here. <laughs> you, he said, you said crazy. I'm going crazy. All right. <laughs> So one of the one of the issues I run into in the book was the mobile, use of a mobile canner, and that if you're using a mobile canner to go put your cans in distribution through a distributor to the retailer, you're almost always losing money. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, cans tend to sell better. So true. Uh, I know obviously you had bottles from us, but pr- predominantly when you were when you had the distribution house, did you go more cans, more bottles? Was there a a thought process or an issue or is it it was more of what what did you sell us what did you do um i know you guys did bottles bottles were sometimes harder to sell just because they take up a little more space you know sometimes that you, know, you should try now <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> there's more there's no space anywhere um cans were just easier to stack you know storage wise cans were always easier but again you could run into the same problem bottles were easier to sell because you could do a smaller batch bottle it you know and being the bottle condition that you had it was actually better sometimes to sit in the bottle longer versus you know we had the cider company sent bottles down and it was not you know the difference between seattle and houston apparently was different we had bottles exploding in the warehouse and the glass was just shattering the box and we'd have problems and we had bugs and it was just a mess because of the pressure changes you know we had a few of those with cans but Cans stacked up easier, cans take up less space, cans are easier to move, things along those lines. But 
it wasn't really our plan. It was whoever was working with plan. You know, I know. Sure. I know uh, Huff Brewing. I forgot yeah. about those guys. He's he's awesome. He's still Man. doing it. He still does it on you know it's it's a weekend job still for him. And we were trying to we were trying to get him to retire, and we just we couldn't sell enough beer for him. But he did the mobile canning, and I think he still does it for the the Huffmeister. Yeah, I think that's the only thing he cans, and he does it when he has you know he runs out of stock in cans. He goes and they come out and they, they can it for him, and then he just sits on it until he runs out and he comes back and do it again. So it works for him because he's a one man shop. He does it all himself, and he's a he's another one of those. It's quality over quantity. He'd rather do a quality beer. He's not afraid to dump it. He wanted to make sure that he put out what he put out. You know, he stood behind 110. percent So you know, when he does the cans, you know, he was like, "All right, cool. We're gonna put you in here and then and then." You know, so it works for some people. And then there's you know, his friends. He, he always joked about um, Brazos Valley, and they just wanted to can everything. And he says he's really good friends with them, but everything they, they made, they threw in cans. He was like, I didn't want to do that. You know, it comes down to, you know, what is your stable thing and what's going to do, if you're going to invest the money in, in a canning line and have the mobile canners come out and do it, is it something you're worth investing in? You know, am I going to be able to move 47 different SKUs versus, you know, your two stables that people know about, people have been drinking for long, hey, I want to take it home, hey, I can pick up a six-pack. If you're going to do it, do it right. Don't don't try to put everything in a thing. Nothing about you know, Brazos Valley, they're, their beers are what they are, but, you know, if you're putting everything into a can and, you know, people have something to choose from, you know, you're going to want to choose carefully, I think, what you put in your cans. Well, and Brazos Valley actually has statewide distribution with it, which does help a little yes, bit. Yes, it definitely um, helps them. If, if you're using mobile canning, predominantly you should be selling that on site. And mm-hmm. then if you sell it out of your tasting room, you can actually be really profitable with it. Just that distribution stuff. And now, and now that you can sell it out of your site, it makes it a whole lot different. You know, it makes it, it's a, it changes the game in the distribution world for sure. Because now I, you're like, well, I don't have anything to sell to you. I'm going to sell it on my, and I'm going to make the profits here versus selling it to you at discount. And I have to make a little bit of money on it. So now I have to mark it up and sell it to the retailers and, they have to pay more now, you know, from the box store. So it's, it the the changing of the laws in the last couple of years has definitely helped the brewers. And bad as COVID was, it's actually kind of helped with the take on or take away and you know buy from directly from the brewers. It's helped a little bit, I think, from my observations at least. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Plus, if you've already got the tasting room traffic, being able to sell them another skew for whatever right. reason makes a big difference. Um, so, and if you tell it on site, the margins are way better. Oh, absolutely. But, all right, well, mistake six in the book was if you fuck up, don't dump it, which I definitely did not do as much as I should have. Um, <laughs> use the example of Black Fury. That beer was actually discontinued. Uh, the final batch was a year and a half ago, oh and I was happy to see it go. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those ones that just was consistently oxidized, and where some people enjoyed that extra yep. sour flavor. For me, it didn't fit the lineup of everything we did. So that one wasn't actually an accident, but it was a recipe that I shouldn't have been selling, <laughs> in my opinion. I had customers pissed that when it went away, and I had customers ask me when it was going to come back, and blah, blah. So anyways, my point being, uh, did you guys ever have a recall? And um, if you did, how'd you handle it? Or- so we did have, again, when we had the cider issue, when they were blowing up, we actually had to call, go into... Um, our Whole Foods and pull them. So that was in the, I got the impression that was in the warehouse. That was on the shelves as well. It, it happened in the warehouse, but it also happened on the shelves. And so okay. we did have to reach out to the, the guys out in, in Seattle and say, hey guys, this was going on. You know, they're like, this never happened. I was like, well, I understand it's never happened there. 
I can't sell, you know, I've got people pissed off saying, hey, we're not going to be able to sell this if you don't fix it. So we did have to go in and, and pull what was on shelves and replace it with brand new did that come that come from the store level, or did you have a, uh, a regional ordering person? That came from the store level because okay. it was still at the at the small level side. We did it mostly out of Whole Foods. We're the first one to get the the special batch of the the special ciders. It was kind of their our way of you know, they were the first one to take the ciders. We're going to be the first one to offer you guys these these bottled ciders and things along those lines. It was the their fundraiser ciders, and I can't remember. They had four special flavors, and they sent them to Texas. And they sold real well out there. They sold decently here. I mean, we did a really good job with them. Um, but you know, when you have a, a bottle explode in the storefront, you're like, eh, we need to make sure that this. And, and and they were really good. I mean, they sent us. I mean, the very next day, they were they were getting a, an order put together to ship us uh, replacements. And then you know, they actually shipped them back out to. Uh, Seattle to go to go through and make sure that there's something nothing was wrong with them. So oh, they brought them all the way. They back? actually brought them okay. back, which was interesting. Did you get much negative feedback from the store? Uh, no, I mean we had a you know hey we went in and said hey you know, we apologize, not sure what happened, but we're going to replace it. We'll get it in here and we'll just swap them out. And we didn't have anything where it was a mass destruction or anything that bad happened. It was one or two here or there, but. You know, as a precaution, instead of letting something happen, we were trying to be as proactive as we could. Found out it happened in one store. We walked into all of them, pulled them off the shelves, and put new stuff, new new product on um, as soon as we had it. So we, we tried to be very proactive about that so we didn't have that problem because it would be – the negativity wouldn't come back on us. I mean, yes, it would have hurt Wandering Boots. Hey, they put bad beer. But in the long run, it wasn't our, our fault that the beer was – or the, the cider was bad or, or something was wrong with it. It was – it would have looked bad on locusts that they were the ones that hey they sent bad beer or they sent bad cider things are blowing up we don't want to drink it so we didn't want that negative press for them because that would just look bad on us because I couldn't sell it then so sure. you know, bad press is bad for everybody you know we didn't have any of those problems where it came back to bite us in the butt you know so being, being proactive is is number one you know and it was very good you know working with all of our brewers hey I got a problem you guys are all real good about where's the problem how can we fix it. And going to talk to the store manager, the buying manager. Hey, what, what's going on? Where's your problems? And I had a bad keg supposedly out in, in the woodlands, and Ryan took off of work that day and drove all the way to the woodlands to talk to the, the beer managers to make sure that he was happy. And if he wasn't happy, he swapped out the keg and said, "Hey, we'll, we'll replace it at no cost." Da, da da da. So, you know, being very proactive is it was definitely the smarter way to do it because sometimes you can't recover from bad press. Well, you have to be careful with what if you sell them beer and it's not mm-hmm. good. That's right. They're going to be very skeptical about the next one. So, correct. That's always an issue. Correct. But ultimately, that you didn't have a lot of issues with having to recall. We didn't. We didn't that's really good. have any real bad real calls. Like I said, there's some win. people that just they didn't like the beer and they just didn't want to buy it again. But it's not something that was a recall problem. They just it wasn't a good seller for them, or they just didn't particularly care for this one. And that's fine. You are what you are, and if you don't like it, that's that's everybody's palate's different. We'll find somebody that does like it. Yeah, right. Hopefully. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I'm going to take a quick break here, and then uh, we got Mistake 7's coming up, which is trust distributors to oh, sell God. your beer. And that one, you get to tell me uh, sure. kind of how you guys did in that department. Oh, so. boy. Oh, boy. All right. Oh, boy. So we'll be right back. Right. Remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and send it to your house in a book large enough to knock somebody out? Well, that's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. The industry can be better by being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simple to use, and one of those how the hell did we ever get along without it products. For less than a case of beer, you get real-time fermentation feedback on your current gravity, temperature, and clarity. If anything is slowing down or just simply out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, 
and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving beer quality off your list, and get back to figuring out how to be profitable in this industry. All right, we're back. So mistake seven, trust distributors to sell your beer. <laughs> so in this section, I try to kind of get a feel for or try to explain more or less uh, what we need as a supplier from our distributor and how to really kind of look through a distributor um, to figure out what whether they are a good fit for what we need. And so three of the areas that I kind of went through is opportunity, efficiency, and headspace. So let's just look at how Wandering Boots stacked up from the opportunity perspective, okay. which I think might be the area you win. But opportunity meaning the number of brands divided by the number of accounts. Right. So in Houston, any idea how many accounts you guys service towards the end? We were up over 350, I believe. We were working on trying to get some of more of the big houses. Um, we were adding HEBs uh, weekly. Which um, would have doubled it. Which would have doubled it. And at <laughs> yeah. this point, would have probably have triple, quadrupled it because – I swear, every time I go blink, there's a new HCB being built on the corner. We'd gotten all of the total wines, and they were continuing to add in their area. We were, we were trying to still break into that specs, that spec space. Um, we were starting to pick up a little bit more on the uh, the, the local gas station kind of thing. Finally, we were starting to get some shelf space. Um, we were trying to target some of the the newer incomings. There's always been the quick stops and things like that, but Fuel Mart was making a big push into some of the out. Uh, suburb or the outer areas of the Houston market um, and we had JR had had some contacts with them about trying to get into their spaces um, which would have quadrupled us very quickly would have required us to upsize very very quickly had we landed something along those lines so we were working on we were working trying to get to that thousand mark within the first five years and we were like I said three or four years into it we were 350 plus so we were we were, we were trying to get there a lot of it um off-premises, but, you know, the on-premises stuff, we were still trying to push as well. Uh, we're always trying to add new people to try to build our market spaces. And then, you know, we picked up um, a delivery guy slash sales guy towards the end that was doing a really good job because he had come from Miller and he had been recently laid off and he called me. I'd met him doing a drop in, in Richmond Rosenberg. was doing the drop. He was having lunch. And he sold from the truck. He was a sell from the truck guy for Miller. And he goes, hey, or, or for... Um, Houston, Houston Distributing Company, and said, hey, I'm Carlos, you know, we, we chit-chatted, and I told him who we were, what we did, he said, that's really cool, you know, in a business card, and I said, if I needed anything, you can call, I said, okay, yeah, no, not thinking I'd ever hear from him, you know, until a couple months later down the road, hey, this is Carlos, I recently got laid off, do y'all need a delivery driver, I said, heck yeah, I need a delivery driver, so we hired our second delivery driver, um, and along that came his route, and it basically ran... All the way from, uh, ran the Highway 6 market, which is something we hadn't quite tapped into. We'd had a few conversations down in that area. We just didn't have a, enough salespeople at the time. So he kind of did a sale from the truck model. He delivered, but he'd also do, do sales while he was in the delivery mode. So he was a really a huge asset to us um, for the short time that he was with us. You know, I don't think he was there six months before we closed the doors. And you know, he was really cool. He actually sent him on a drive to go pick up good-ass beer. Because they wouldn't sell us a full truckload because we hadn't met our financial uh, obligations to them. But they would sell <laughs> us in half if we came and picked it up. From where? Illinois. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't it up north? Yeah. Um, That's a long drive. Miha, Minas, Minas, something like that. So I'm brewing up there. He, so we sent him up there in a refrigerated truck and he picked it up and brought it back for us. Wow. Um, 48 hours. He did a turnaround. He actually, uh, when he left us, he, he went to drive uh, long haul. Uh, as a trucker so i think he's still doing that 
he had a, cu- a family member that owned a trucking company, so I think that's what he's still doing. But so when it came to that kind of stuff, you know, we were we were trying real hard, and he kind of helped us establish a lot more of that on-premise kind of thing. Jr. was working very hard to try to get us some of the off-premise kind of stuff. So we were we were trying to get there. We were we were working hard at it. You know, I said we didn't have as big of a staff as we probably needed at that time, but we were still trying to make sure that people got paid. How many salespeople do you think you had at the end? Well, uh, let's see. Two, four, I think we're up to six, seven of them, maybe, seven or eight, six or eight, six to six to eight would be my guess, because Carlos kind of doubled as one, and Will didn't ever really sold beer, he just kind of delivered for us and did all the cleaning, maintenance kind of stuff, and, you know, we had Mark, and Toby, and Sean, JR, Chad, Jamie, Jamie, and there's one more, and I can't think of her name, she used to own Rockwell, I should know her, she owned uh, the Beer 30 out in Cyprus. They had lost their lease at Rockwell to open Beer 30. It was a food truck park. They had food trucks all the way around and then a beer house in the middle. Yeah. I remember them being kind of a cool account. It was a neat concept, and she really liked She had a. She always cracked me up because when she was the restaurant on the restaurant side, she's like, yeah, I got a storage unit full of kegs that I'm saving. I'm like, what? Yeah. That's a thing? Anyways, but yeah, so we had about eight, probably ten. So we were trying to get to that point where we were ready to step up and but Making sure we had enough for, for payroll was, was the, and the hardest part for us, I know, was, was, was pay. And we offered, we were commission-based. Uh, JR and Sean had been salary-based for a while because they started to move, move more accounts. They were salesmen. They were supposed to be pushing, pushing, pushing. But, you know, when you have commission-based sales, it's very difficult. And you didn't have insurance. And there was a lot of upfront costs to that. It's a very difficult business. But, you know, we were doing the best that we could. We offered a, a high Commission rating. If you sold whatever you sold, you got ten percent of. So it was a ten percent. Oh, yeah. So it was, it was. We were trying to incentivize as much as we could. You know, we were trying to push large volumes so that you made some money. And a lot of them did. You know, as we started getting toward the end, and insurance came, kind of got an issue for a couple of them. And, you know, some of them, some of them had families. And you know, when they, when Toby left, he's like, "I got to go." And I'm like, I, "I get it. I get it." You know, we did the best that we could, and we pushed as hard as we could, and we just couldn't offer things that some of the bigger companies could. I'm pretty sure last time I had heard from Toby, he was still doing liquor sales, or he'd gone back to liquor sales. Yeah, he got to start doing something with Jägermeister or something, didn't he? He did. He was okay. he was the reason Jägermeister took off in Texas. He was the he was the sales when they brought him to Texas. That was Toby and his team. He brought it in, and Jägermeister rewarded him very well. I'm yeah. pretty sure he said that they were the reason he bought the house that he did <laughs> because he his team you know blew up Jägermeister everywhere. So. Well, when I was younger, I helped him out yeah. quite a bit. Did sure, you? yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much you to mean. my regret, but I'm pretty sure there's a couple of bars that thank me for the Jägermeister sales too. <clears throat> well, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what would you say is if, if somebody was considering looking for a distributor? Um, what do you think the biggest <clears throat> things that were, were that Wandering Boots was lacking that they should be aware of when looking? Uh, so, I will tell you, it, you know, when you look at the bigger guys, they're gonna they're gonna take on new and, and what's new and hot and you're gonna be the new guy and you're gonna push drop a lot of money and you push you out in people's faces and then they're gonna drop once the next one comes along they move on and we did that same kind of thing we didn't try to do that same thing but it came down to money um you know we only had so many sales people to do so much and we didn't have a lot of money to, to back it we were you know tap, tape covers and, and glassware and things like that were important you know and, you know we relied heavily on the brewers to be able to supply that and so it's something that 
know, if you wanted it marketed, we needed your help. And that was one thing I noticed that we could have done a better job was as a marketing side of it. But, you know, when you look at some of the bigger ones and talking to some of the ones, you know, who are with bigger distributors, you know, they say, look, after you get about six months, about six months of, of them pushing, pushing, pushing. And then after that, it's up to you. It's up to you to put your salespeople in the, in the field. It's up to you to be continue to try to push the, the envelope and say, hey, this is what's new. This is what's going on with our brewery. This is what's going on with our beers. You know, and we didn't have as much of that as we, it was, we needed. You know, we were trying our best to supply um, as much marketing material as we could. You know, color printers only go so far. You know, glassware goes great for most people. I mean, you know, but at some point, if you're going to do two tap or takeovers at the same place, most people are going to have that glassware. And then they're going to have those stickers already. What else can you do to help increase those brands and, and push it into a new market or and push it into a new store and push it into a new bar? You know, so those are the kind of the areas that I know that we could have done a lot better if we had had more of a financial backing or of a more of a, a marketing department to kind of help push what we had in store. And we didn't have a lot of brands, you know, but we did the best that we could with the brands we had. We tried to we tried to sell the crap out of them, and that's that was our goal is to sell as much of it as we could because if we sold it all, we could buy more, and if we sold more of that, we could buy more and add more brands, and you know. And you know, we didn't want to be brand collectors. We just didn't want to have them sitting in the store. We wanted to sell them. And that was one of the, th the approaches that we took was, you know, we're not going to take you on if we can't sell you. And we're not going to, we can't sell one. We don't want to just, we don't want a horse shop. Good ass beer obviously was a one horse shop because that's all they sold. You know, we were trying to build that. One donkey show. You know, <laughs> one ass Sorry, of a show. couldn't help it. One ass of a show. Um, which was funny because they, uh, we actually talked to somebody would be, they would have sold more beer if it had been a stallion. The, oh, that's funny. The Hispanic population didn't want to buy it because it was a donkey. It was a negative yeah. connotation. They wanted it to be a stallion. That was exactly the way they said huh. it, too. I want it to be a stallion. Which is probably true. I, I, right? That's what I said. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's that's interesting. I That's exactly what they told one of our, our sales guys. Okay. But the, the attempt to market outside of what we were doing is very difficult. You know, it's you know, the best we could. You know, I'm not going to sell the beer as best. You know, as you are, you're going to know a whole lot more about Blondine and Das Local than I am because I'm not the one, especially me. I was the worst salesperson. You weren't even drinking it. I couldn't drink it. Yeah. I couldn't tell you anything about it. I could read and I could BS and I was pretty good at BS. And, and I'll, uh, Tiffany, that was her name. That was the other salesperson. Oh, but yeah. Tiffany was my very first and only sale I ever made in brewery because I went out to the brewery and I sold her what I had. And, and I, if she was truthful with you and if you talked to her, I'm pretty sure she'll tell you I was the worst salesperson. She felt sorry for you, man. She felt sorry for me. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, this is, this is, this is foolproof. And <laughs> this is the, the porter and shit. <laughs> What's the alcohol percent? I have no, no idea. idea. Here's the sales sheet. Read it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but that would be the one thing that you have to focus on when you're talking to a distributor is what they have to offer you on the marketing side. Because, you know, once you get the relationships and, and, and you know, the beer in the store, we're going to do the best to re replenish that, you know, but we can't, you know, how are you going to get the consumers to buy it so I can replenish it so I can come back to you and buy more? You know, I can't, I, being the small people, we didn't have the financial backing to do that. You can go to the big guys. Like I said, if you're you're new and popular, give you about six months before you're on your own, um, and that's that's straight from one of their people's mouths, a, a little higher up in their. You know, they've got a 
a catalog of 900 beers to choose from. And yeah, they can't be investing in exactly. headspace in each one of them, I'm sure. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's knowing that for it to really work, it's got to be a real partnership. And that's what we strive to do. And I'm pretty sure we failed miserably at times. You know, we worked really hard at trying that partnership. Um, but I know that marketing would be the big thing. The big thing that where we failed was we didn't have the marketing dollars to help push the beer as much as we could. You know, we did the best that we thought, you know, what we could do. But it wasn't, there wasn't anything else that we could do because we just didn't have the financials to, you know, make these big signs or the, the door wraps or the cooler things or hand out free bottle openers or things along those lines. Yeah, so since since you guys were a smaller distributor, um, you know, a little bit undercapitalized and, and were struggling to kind of get your feet in there, uh, clearly there at some point had to have been suppliers that were disappointed. Uh, and it's, that's the oh. natural part of the industry. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, suppliers tend to hate distributors across yep. the board. Um, did you ever ever have a brewery or cidery that left? Um, you said, um, hey, we're done. Besides you guys? No. Um, I actually I, did in my defense. You did. <laughs> you didn't. You're right. Actually, no. I mean, at the end, everybody was pissed at us, and, and, and rightfully so. I mean, at the end, we were, we were, we were bleeding cash. We weren't, we weren't able to meet our financial op- you know, obligations to either side. And we couldn't we couldn't repay the suppliers for the beer that we had already per, you know had in house and then tried to sell. We'd use the money for sales to make sure that we took care of the people that we had. You know, we did the best that we could to make sure that we could go as far as we could take care of the people in house. Which was you know my one more thing is if we we're going to go out of business, I already knew that I would lost everything. But I wanted to make sure at least before we let our people go for the final time, at least they had the money to keep the lights on in their houses or. or at least get enough gas to go to a job interview. So, you know, that, and that's really what it brought it down to. I mean, I, I worked really hard. You know, we got Will a job with um, Running Walker oh, down yeah. in Richmond. You know, hey, we're going under. You know, we can't keep doing what we're doing. You know, we had tried with them. We did something a little different with them. We were just we were just a delivery service for them. So we would pick up some of their, their stock and hold it in the warehouse, and their, their salespeople would sell it, send us, hey, this is where it needs to be dropped off. We dropped off. We billed them for what we did. Now we worked a little bit of a, a backside to that because it was a package thing. We were able to sell a little bit on the backside for that as well, just to kind of help, which did help us in, in, in different. You know, the, the the main point was making sure that we got people taken care of at the end, and so that was where you know some of the relationships are definitely strained. Um, <laughs> to, to be nice about it, I mean, how things happen went down at the end was was not pretty. I mean, I feel bad. I do. I mean, it was hard to walk away. It was hard to. You know, see people that I would have considered friends, and we were coworkers, or we you know, we worked for each other. I worked for you, and you worked for me, and you had to supply me with beer, and I had to come get the beer and sell the beer. But you know, it was those relationships that we had built that were definitely strained. You know, I'll, I'll never forget when Fetching Lab walked in to try to take his stuff, and he tried to storm back out into the into the into the warehouse, and I had to step in front of him and say, "I can't let you do that. I can't let you walk out there." And, you know, and things have already been strained with Mary and, and, and where things at home were not, you know, we, we were not able to separate home from work at that time. That's so hard. It very is. It was yeah. very difficult and, you know, it strained it a lot and then get to the end and there's no cash and there's no money and people are pissed at me and people are pissed at her. And, and you know, so I wouldn't say anyone left because they were unhappy with what we did. It's just they left because we went out of business and then everything was strained after that. <laughs> right. So we didn't lose anybody because we didn't underperform. You know, we didn't not meet our obligation. We just, we didn't meet anything at that point. We were just done. <laughs> How did you guys decide that this is always an issue when, when times are tough and you have to, like you're running a business, you have to kind of pretend that 
Things not are good. as tough. Yep. Yeah. However, however you want to word that. Um, <laughs> did you and Mary actually sit down and say, look, here's the party line. Here's what we're going to tell everybody. Or was it just sort of, and, and this is obviously a very stressful time. So you're yep. going to probably do a lot of ad libbing, but what, what was the storyline that you kind of were telling people? So, uh, again, things at home have been strained and we had, we had gone separate ways. We had, you know, I'd, Moved out of the bedroom and moved out. You know, I moved back to my parents' house. And towards the end, the last three or four months, I had, I had moved out, and so we only spoke each other when we were at work, and it was usually after hours when she would show mm. up after her day job. And so there was times that we were we were talking, and I know in the month of May and June prior to all of this, and there was uh, phone calls from two two suppliers out of state that were going, "Hey, what's going on?" Where's this? Where's this? We're doing this. We're doing this. You know, Absolution and, and Good Ass Beer were the ones going, hey, you haven't paid us. You haven't paid us. You haven't paid us. You haven't paid us. What's going on? You know, we don't have any contact with you. And I'm saying, we're working on it. You know, I, I, I ended up being the front guy to that. And I took most of that blame mm-hmm. just to make sure that, hey, I don't know what's going on. Because at that point, I was I was disconnected from what was going on on the financial side. Glad that we had brought in a financial team, I guess you would call it, to oversee finances and approve purchases and it was out of my hands i was saying this is what we're going to do well i got to get permission at this point because i couldn't write a check anymore but i was the one taking the phone calls going look we're doing the best we can we're trying um expect the check when when we you know in the next couple of days we'll get it sent you know and obviously that's a lie because i didn't know when a check was going to get sent you know and i was trying i was trying to do the best i could not to lie but when you have somebody screaming at you on the phone I don't have an answer for you. Well, I see both sides. If, if every supplier walks away, then you are bankrupt that minute, exactly. essentially. So, so you, if I told you that I was done, you're going to pull your product. I'm not going to have any cash to try to make things. So if I lie to you and tell you, hey, we're doing great, you know, the check's in the mail, check got lost, I'll recut you a check. You know, I've got two or three more weeks, hopefully, that I can try to find and scrape up the money to, to, to pay a bill. So I know it, you know, it gets to the point where it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult. Um, like I said, I am not one of those people that like to fail. And failure is not an option in my book. Do you know people that do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've learned a long lesson in my life, and failure—you know—failure is not an option. And then that was a—that was I was going to make it work some way somehow. I was like, how how many more hours can I work? How many more sales I can make? And just to the point, you can't do it anymore. Um, and so when we had to make those tough decisions, we'd take those those tough phone calls and say, hey. We're going under, and you can come get what you got left, and we'll do the best we can. It was difficult to watch everybody come into that, that warehouse and load up their supplies, and you know, maybe the last time I saw some of those people. Well, and it's like slowly taking mm-hmm. the pieces apart of the puzzle. Right, so, you're yeah. just taking the pe- the puzzle pieces away, and so you're sitting there with you know a ton of trash, and that's all that's left. And the cold cooler out front, that empty, slowly emptied out my cold cooler, and I was like, all right, well, I've got nothing left now. So. You feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel because you feel like you let everybody down. You know, and that's just that's just how business is, I get. But I guess I was never cut out to be a cutthroat business person. <laughs> yeah, but no, if, if you didn't uh, you didn't feel a little bit of remorse and some guilt toward it, obviously you wouldn't be a, a real, exactly. real human being, that's right? That's right, so. that's right. So unfortunately, you guys went out of business. Sounds like your relationship with Mary kind of was one of the things that also went down with it. Yep, that it was. Uh, and that, that's that's definitely too bad. That's, that's two things at once, kind of two, right. two big life pieces that's for you. That's right. My, my life fell apart. And, you know, things, you know, life life happens and you, you got to learn how to rebuild and pick yourself back up. And, you know, when you hit rock bottom, you, you know, grab yourself by the bootstraps and pull yourself up. And, 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 you know, it's taken me 
four years or five years almost to, to, to get back up you know where I need to be and that, that, you know, working forward and trying to give you as much information as I can so that people don't have that same problem but <laughs> you're gonna have that same problem I mean it's just oh, yeah. it's just the nature of the beast yeah it'll happen again I'm sure that's right you're gonna get knocked down but you know you learn you learn the lessons that help you get back up a little bit faster every time. I appreciate you digging up all the old shit with me. <laughs> I'll dig up everything you want. We can talk all kinds of shit today. Let's go. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, mistake 10 was don't figure out how to manage cash flow. And I think, obviously, that was a kind of a big issue for you. It's funny, and I think there's some truth to this, but almost any brewery that you talk to is going to say that in this industry, distributors have all the money. No. Uh, clearly, in the case of Wandering Boots, that we was definitely true. did not have all the money. <laughs> um, what and, and and you know we're we're kind of trying to look back, and obviously it's years later. But what do, what do you think was the biggest thing that didn't contribute to profitability? What was holding you back from profitability? Because obviously you had suppliers, you, you had ways to deliver the product. Clearly, that either that wasn't enough of those things, or they weren't they weren't structured in a way that was profitable. Right. Um, I, like I said. When we first started, it took a lot of capital to get started, and that was an underestimation on our point. We thought, you know, thirty thousand dollars would be able to get the doors open, everything would be great. You know, when you're almost a hundred thousand dollars in debt after the, you know, not even getting your doors open, it becomes very difficult, and you have to play catch up from there. You know, once you start building your brands and you start getting in the market, there's a lot of money that you have to play put out front. Like, it's, it's the same for brewers. There's a lot of upfront costs that it's hard to recuperate. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to equipment, you know, when you buy delivery vans and the delivery things, you know, it's the stuff they talked about earlier. But you know, you always feel like you're playing catch up, and until you get to a point, you know, where you have a thousand accounts or a thousand plus accounts, and you have enough brands that you're still you know, I never wanted to be one of those houses that had 9,000 SKUs. I never wanted to be that big. I didn't. You know, I that's because you were delivering them all. That's why I was delivering them all. My back was killing me. Um, but I wanted to be able to go, I, I wanted to be able to still know what was in the house. I still wanted to be able to look in the yeah. warehouse and go, okay, I know that Fetching Labs has this. I know that New Brunfels Brewing has this. I know that Locust has this. I wanted to know that we still had you know things in the house that were selling. We were doing the best that we could to put the best beers and the best products out on the line without compromising their quality and then compromising what we did. And we wanted to be profitable. We wanted to take over. We wanted to push, you know, the ultimate goal was for AB InBev and, and, and for um, Silver Eagle to go, hey, who, who the hell are you? We need you all to go away and I'm going to tell them to fuck off. You would like, say, I'm Chris Jones, I'm bitch. Here. Chris Jones, bitch. This is my house now. Which I didn't get to do. And I, did the, uh-huh. I did the Seattle, or the, they did a conference in Vegas, and I sat and met one of the, guy, the facility manager, some manager, craft brands manager for Silver Eagle. Here's my card. If you find any of my kegs, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, nice. throw this away. You don't need this. If you find any of my kegs, make sure you return them, dick. But, you know, it was always one of those things you're like, how far would we have needed to go? I don't know. I don't know how long that was going to take. I, know I wanted to be profitable, but I wanted to make sure that Again, I'm not the business guy. I wanted to make sure that people were taken care of because people take care of people. You know, if you're taking care of the people that work for you, the suppliers and things like that, I feel like that's the best way to invest in companies. When they put out the best things and when we're profitable, then I'll be profitable and then I'll be successful. Um, so to get to that break-even point where we we're making money required a lot more than we were able to do. I always felt like we were playing catch-up. How much money do you have to borrow to be before you feel, you know, feel like you're playing catch-up? I don't know. I don't know if that, there's ever any, any businesses to go, I'm going to be so successful in the first two years that I'm not going to need to borrow money. 
I'll look at the the people down in uh, the Richmond at Brahman Brewing. You know, they, they partner up with they they have a winery and brewery in the same building, and I know their build up was ridiculous. It is a gorgeous building, gorgeous brewery. You know, thirty tanks to the roof. It was ridiculous, and I know they had a lot of capital behind it. Are they going to be successful in ten years? I don't know. You know, a small house brew like this, are you going to be successful in 10 years? Probably not, but you know, you might be. It's not not likely. (laughs) You're like, I don't have a 10-year plan at this point. 10-year plan just to... I've got a 10-day plan. you got to go, see? So everybody's plans are a little bit different. What do you want to do with it? But, you know, to be profitable, you've got to... There's at times you've got to make difficult decisions. And, you know, we had to make those difficult decisions. And unfortunately, those difficult decisions didn't pay off long-term. You know, we made the the decisions to, to take money to take out loans and to try to make it to that next level. But, you know, when you find out, you know, you know sometimes when the, the big brewers find out who you are, they, they start trying to push you out. And, and it happened in some accounts that we can't buy your beer anymore. We've got too many extra taps to come into this because of this, da, 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 da. That happened in a couple of bars. And again, you don't have anything new for us. And a lot of that happened a lot. There was a lot of things that we couldn't break into the market because, or into these certain bars because, they didn't have, you know, they were already bought up because somebody promised them an extra this, this, and this if you bought two or three more lines. So they would have no lines for us to, to get into. And, you know, shelf space is limited. I mean, it is. It's getting tighter and tighter. It is. And so, you know, when you're still, you're having to play that game with with a, other distributors and other independents and things like that. It's, it's very difficult to, unless you have, unfortunately, the newest, greatest, best thing to keep you on those shelves and refreshing those shelves and then have that backing from the breweries and the backing from the marketing and the backing. There has to be multiple people involved in it. And our problem was we didn't have enough multiple people. We had us and a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And, you know, first, you know, the, the small people we worked with, they were great people, but they didn't have the marketing dollars like a Carbock did. And you can drop millions of dollars into advertising. People are like, oh, yeah, I know what Roto Clown is. Yeah. To this day. That's right. Do you know what a blondine is? A what? Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) How about a pickle fucker? You know that? I know what a pickle fucker is. Apparently everyone knows what that is. Everybody knows what a pickle fucker is. Uh, Except for Martin House. They don't remember who we are. They said that. Um, But so on the uh, cash flow (laughs) side, quick question. And this is one that, um, a little bit of speculation, but... It, so obviously, as you went down the line, you had to add, add things, and as you added things, you also added debt, and as you added debt, a lot of times that was like unsecured and so higher interest rate. How much of a difference do you think that it would have made uh, if you had been able to kind of project all of those things and get one lower interest rate loan for everything that you needed? I think it would have helped a lot. I don't think we would have been as behind. Um, I think we would have been able to scale up a little bit more quicker because we could have had, okay, we know that we're going to need... X, Y, and Z. We know that to be able to pay for X, Y, and Z, I'm going to need sales from this, 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 and this. Okay, so let's get some more salespeople out doing this, this, this. Let's get a few more of this, this, and this so that we could go and go, all right, look, in two years, we need to be at this number. So if I knew that two years, I'd be $350,000 to operate a month or a year, I was going to need that operating cost. I would have been able to go, here's where we need to up faster. We sure. need to bring on more salespeople faster. We need to bring on more delivery drivers faster. We need to bring on this faster, faster, faster. Um, you know, the learning curve for everybody was, you know, very quick. <laughs> yeah, you don't have a lot of time. I was like, you know, blink, and you're like, okay, we're, you know, every time you add a new brand, 
all right, well, I got to figure out what my profit margins on this and this and this and this. And a lot of the time, there's an Excel spreadsheet, and I'm like, uh, is that enough? Shit, if I know, but will it sell? It will sell. Let's do it. Make it work. Make it work. Sometimes I'm pretty sure that we undersold, and I'll be the first to admit I'm pretty sure that uh, we didn't mark things up higher enough than we did. Um, we probably should have marked things up higher. Like using a higher margin? A higher margin. Pretty much everything was 30%, wasn't it? Mm. Or did you 30 have was one the day? number. Sometimes there was, like, the limited release would be a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if we were having troubles, it would be a lower number. We tried to stay at the 20, between 25 and 35, depending on what was going on, but... Well, because you were paying 10% of it out for commission, right? So, correct. So sometimes you had to take a little bit higher of it. Um, and that's probably another place that we probably shouldn't have paid 10%. Should have paid a little bit lower and kept a little profit more profit to add more brands, add more marketing, to add more sales. So a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Cash flow, <laughs> cash flow is definitely a difficult one because it's not going to be the same for everybody. you know, And especially on the distributor side because, again, you want to get paid in 30 days. <laughs> Right. 30 days is not that long. Some distributors that pay uh, cash, I mean, some distributors that pay twenty net 20, but it just depends on yeah. who they are. And obviously, the cash guys are the big ones. Yeah. 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 But when they got a you know, half million dollars, hang on, back pocket, here's your measly $17,000 and I need that I owe you. And you're like, no, oh, $17,000 is you know four or five months of us operating costs. So Obviously, the challenge. But so breweries do that a lot, too. You'll see them... Um, open up with a certain amount of equipment and they go get a uh, loan for the new tank or a loan for the extra 300 kegs they need to go into the Houston market. And it's sort of the same thing. They wind up taking a look back and be like, oh shit, my monthly nut went up to a level now that I can't cover that with the sales that I have. But one advantage that distributors have is that because you guys have a pretty well fixed margin, you know that if you bring in $10,000 worth of product that it's going to net you somewhere around 3000 because you have a 30% margin minus right. expenses. But... Um, and that's a little more challenging for breweries because we don't have that structures all over the place based on the beer. And some guys are tighter where they've got a specific markup, but that's not regular. So. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I think we'll take a quick break and then I'm going to come back and just kind of wrap it up, get a couple quick questions for you. And um, then we'll get you out of here and get you on your way. Sounds so. like a plan. Okay. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, so we're back again. Just a couple quick questions for you. So guy wants to open a brewery, what are you going to tell him? Don't do it. No. Um, I expected more people to say that. So far, I haven't gotten many. Really? Yeah. Do you like beer? Because you won't by the time you're done with it. Because it becomes, when you take a passion or something like that, you want to do something like that, it really does, unless you, you pace yourself and be very diligent about it, becomes the job becomes so much that you're not going to enjoy what you're doing anymore. You, know, you can brew as much beer as you want and the stuff that you like, but 
when you get to the point where you're brewing stuff to try to stay in business and you have to brew what the market's saying or what your distributor tells you. You yeah. mean like a pastry sour? Yeah, pastry sour. Yeah, Fucking pastry sours. I'm not even sure what a pastry sour is <laughs> supposed to taste like. It doesn't even sound good. I'm not even going to lie. Is it supposed to be like a sour cherry kind of like punch in your mouth kind of thing or what? Yeah, almost like the concept of like a lemon meringue pie or... Um, mm, sour head? Something. No, yeah, no. even even mm. almost like a rum run or punch type thing where it's just got all these flavors so or rum punch. Like, why don't I just go buy, buy a rum punch then? Hey, there, therein oh. lies the whole oh, argument. Okay, yeah. okay, you know, the liquor side of it. Why don't I just go buy, buy the fruity cock... You know, the fruity umbrella drinks. Why don't I just go buy one of those? Why would I want that as a pizza? It would actually be cheaper than what a pastry sour would cost. The bigger you get, the more you lose your creativity side i think the more you become i don't say you know cliche things it becomes your, your passion becomes your job and your job becomes your passion and it's not really always the, the, that case it becomes a job becomes a job and you forget about sometimes outside life and something that you had you really enjoyed and no longer you can enjoy because you're always thinking about well what can i do better or you know the financial stuff's a big thing you know how are you, we're losing money left and right no longer becomes fun before you open a brewery, make sure you, think you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Make sure you got you know win the lottery first or some shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> have nothing better to do with a bunch of cash. Right. Uh, any advice you have somebody, we would give somebody for considering a, a random distributor? <clears throat> Ask a lot of questions. And, and like I said, a lot of the big guys are going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. But do your research first. Reach out to some of those people that are in their portfolio first. And find their, you know, find out who they're already repping and find their smallest skew. And call them and say, are you happy? That would be the best advice. Because if they are not servicing their smallest SKU, which you think they're going to have you be a priority versus the smallest SKU. If you don't have the most popular thing at the moment, what happens when you become the most popular thing? Or you had the most popular thing and now you're not the most popular, what's going to happen? How much money are they going to invest in you after the first, hey, we got you suckered in for the next, for the rest of your life. <laughs> what am I going to, now what are you going to do? You the distributor marriage contract. That's right. Yeah. That contract that you can't get out of. So. Do your due diligence and make sure that when you build your contract that it's you've got yourself a, make a loophole um, so that you can't get out just in case it's not something that works out. You know, you know when, when we went out of business, all of our contracts became null and void, so it was easy for people to get out of ours. But you know, sometimes that you're not fortunate enough, I guess you could say, to get be able to do that. So do your due diligence, ask a lot of questions, and don't be afraid to say no and go find the person that's going to work best with you. It really should be a partnership, and that's. Now, when we when we started this out, it was going to be a partnership. It wasn't going to be we're going to tell you what beers make. We're going to be like, what beers you make and how can we help you sell it? You know, but it didn't. You know, our our, our concept, the thought process was there, and the financial piece wasn't. But you know, <laughs> in the end of the day, you know, if you're not happy with who you're working with, you're not going to be happy long term. So go back to that. Why did you open a brewery? <laughs> you're not. You're not. You weren't happy now. You're definitely not going to be happy if you're stuck in a marriage contract that you can't get out of. Yeah, especially for a market you need to be distributing product to that you can't get it there. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So uh, describe that experience of walking out of the building for the last time. That was um, that was very difficult. Um, like I said earlier, failure is not an option in my book, and I lived by that motto since my mother handed me the keychain when we were at uh, this uh, Space Center in Houston. It's a NASA motto. It was actually used. NASA didn't really use it. There's no real start to where NASA was using it was actually from the Apollo 13 movie. That was one of the lines there and it just kind of got stuck with NASA. So I've lived by that motto for my entire life. You know, know, it took me a little longer to go through college, but I never gave up. You You got me on that one. I did. (laughs) But it was one of those things that, you know, you finally hit rock bottom. You finally have to walk out. Um, 
I'm not even sure I remember. I, I know I took the key off my key ring and I, and I left it on the desk. Um, like I said, it was a very strained relationship at the end. I'm not even sure if I, uh, I don't remember actually walking out, but very difficult not knowing. And I've driven by it a couple times since. The moving company that I hated uh, took over the space because they were dicks and used to park in our parking spot. I remember that. And I have to walk those kegs from the middle of the parking lot into the into the thing. <laughs> Fucking assholes. Um, <laughs> but I've driven by a couple times. <laughs> you can still kind of see the wandering boots on there. Oh, really? Like on the door? Yeah, like on the uh, on the marquee out front because mm. they never really replaced it. Um, they just kind of peeled off so no one else has been there since we left. They just knocked off the wall. But it was a surreal. I mean, like I said, it was a good experience, um, a good life lesson, acknowledge. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely very difficult because, in my mind, I let everybody down. And that's just who I am. That's just the person I am. I let everybody down. Because we didn't succeed. We didn't do what we, what we promised. It was just, you know, sell beer and bring the greatest things to Texas, the greatest beer we could find in Texas. We, could, we didn't do that. So, very difficult from that part of it, um, walking out of the building for the last time and leaving my key on the desk to uh, still get the phone calls a couple weeks later. But why haven't y'all paid y'all's rent yet? <laughs> I don't know because I'm not there anymore. I'm working a new job. The answer to that one is call Mary. Right? <laughs> exactly. You can call Mary. She's probably not going to pick up either. But <laughs> so we still feel to, you know, we changed the forwarding number back to Mary's cell phone. So that was, that made it a little bit easier finally. All those the office calls went to her instead of to me. But yeah, very difficult to you know walk away from something that you put your heart and soul into and go, all right, it's done. It's time to move on. So. Especially when it feels like a failure, mm-hmm. and um, obviously we're currently still sitting in a brewery that That's I right. do sort of own, but um, yeah. I I went through three of those that were kind of like, uh, well, and when I wrote the book, actually, it was the spring of 2019, when I started it, my wife and I had sat down and literally looked at the current liabilities, looked at the sales, and kind of what the projections were for the next quarter, and decided we were done. It was over. It was yeah. That was the end of it. And then... Um, uh, really what ended up happening is I decided that I was going to steward the business through to the end of our lease and our um, so we have a two-year state license in Texas and so I was going to basically wind it down uh, through the end of that which I think was August of that year and during the process of writing the book and all that thing I ended up essentially redoing it but uh, and figuring out a, a business model that worked, we still, currently is working. So it's still working, and we're still sitting here. But that also happened. Uh, if you read the book, there's a I not when I hired the consultant, I had to send out a letter to everybody, basically saying that everything that we have just done is bullshit, didn't work, it's garbage, and I'm very embarrassed. And so I kind of, whereas I didn't walk away completely, I felt I should have walked away right. each of those times, or like legitimately could have. And so I can only imagine how much harder that was to actually leave the key on the desk mm-hmm. and walk away and. And, and really, the for me, the hardest part would be the fact that I, I know that if I came up with a great idea tomorrow, that was it. It's over. I can't use that idea. Yep. So even if looking back now, you're like, oh, we could have fixed it if we had just done this. I could have won the lottery. That would be great. That would have been the worst thing to do with that money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was moving to, to, to Barbados and I was done. <laughs> right. But so do you, was there a mistake that I didn't have on my list? No, that I'm you pretty think? sure we hit all of them. I mean, we hit, we made a lot of them. Like you said, from going to not walking in. I mean, I did as much research as I could, but it's still as much research as you do is you're going to fail somewhere. You're going to miss something. You're going to you're going to step on something. You're going to overspend. But you think you know? I wanted to make sure all our product was delivered cold. Well, you just couldn't do that. Sometimes you know, renting a box truck at four hundred dollars a day. 
versus throwing it in the back of the row was just not the smartest thing. So there's there's a lot of mistakes that were made, you know, and blowing through capital, you know, not planning out every every little thing. You know, capital is tough. You know, capital is a tough thing to manage and not asking for help from investors. If you're going to continue to push through it and make, and make it work, you need to make sure you have people to help you that have the knowledge and then have the money basically to help keep you going because that would be the first one is not asking for financial help earlier in the process to keep going. But would you say that the lack of capital and ongoing investment was probably the biggest issue you ran into? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Like I said, by the time we, we, we started looking for help, it was too late. We had already bled too much and we were already too deep in a hole for anyone to dig us out. So we, we, didn't, we didn't even have the opportunity to sell off to an investment or another a distributor. We would have tried, we tried to you know, sell off to, I think we, t- we contacted Full Clip and we contacted Blue Bonnet and we contacted guys out of San Antonio. I can't think of who they are anymore. Hops and hmm. whoever that was. But nobody could... By that time, you know, you look at our books and we were too, we were trying to even sell it to our employees, you know, in-house and go, hey, buy in, invest in it, and we'll, we'll go together and have partners, but we were too far in the black, or too yeah. far in the red. So, why do you think it's so hard to be profitable in this industry? Um, there's a lot of big players out there with a lot of big money. Um, the big the big houses dominate the market. I mean, you've got Silver Eagle that has a 100% market part uh, penetration. It's very difficult to, you know, find people that are willing to, to buck them because they do control a lot of things. If you don't give them a certain number of taps, you know, they're not going to give you the special beers. They're not going to bring the, the clientele into your, your, your establishment. It's very difficult on that side of it. And the other side is there's a lot of fucking laws to deal with when it comes to TABC and how much and all this that they have to have. And that, that'll drain you very quick. And the TABC wants to get paid. And if you're not paying them, Directly, they're they're wanting to get their pockets paid, you know, padded on the on the legislative side, and I know that COVID actually helped the the brewers being on the side, being able to go from you know to go sales and package sales from the brewery, which is good because it actually takes the money out of the distributor's hands and put it in you guys' hands. So that's a good thing for that to happen, but it's very difficult to 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 buck that system. You know, that system was put in place and it's paid very heavily to keep in that way. It is indeed. <laughs> and if you don't have the right amount of money, you're not going to buck that system. Anybody's not going <laughs> not to change. So I asked everybody how working in the industry has uh, affected your relationship to alcohol. Um, <laughs> you specifically can't drink beer, right? I cannot drink beer. And actually, you know, wine and, and, and bourbon has been the thing that I fell back on. Which you didn't sell either of, I don't remember. No, believe, we didn't right? sell either one of those either. Right. It was probably a good thing because I probably would have drank all of our profit margin in bourbon <laughs> at the time, given how much crap we went through. So uh, to this day, you still don't drink beer? Still don't drink beer. I don't. It's not worth the pain to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth that, that feeling of the three days. I love the smell of it, though. I do love the smell of it. Really? I do. I do love the smell of beer. Mm-hmm. Good beer. You can tell when there's bad beer. But. Well, is there anything you can think of that uh, I didn't ask you about that I should have? Um, I don't think so. You asked a lot of questions, and I tried to remember as much as I could. You know, being out of the industry for four years, you know, things have changed a lot. And I said, when going into this, you know, research is a lot of thing. And I said, capital is a lot of thing. And ask questions. Ask questions of people who have failed, because that's where you learn the most. Is failure always leads to, to learning. You're going to do it. You need to make sure you're ready to understand that you're going to fail at some point. And, and that was one thing that I, I know that I learned from it is that failure is a part of, of growing. And you, know, little failures are always good. 
big failures are not so good. <laughs> <laughs> Being financially broke at almost four years old is very difficult to be, but you may, you know, make, you'll learn the lessons that you do. Um, like I said, we strained a lot of relationships at the end. You know, it didn't work out for Mary and I, but, you know, it is what it is, and, you know, we both moved past it. And it's good to see that some of our brewers are still around, and, you know, even if they're trying to make their way out or some of them are not around. Wish them the best of luck, and like I said, I wish we could have done more. And, but um, you know, it is a, it is it is business, as they like to say. And, you know, I'm not cut out to be a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be I like to be on the good side of things, and it's very difficult for me to be on the, the failing side of it. But um, you know, I'm excited to hear what happens going forward because, you know, like I said, you know, how to not start a brewery is probably the best idea that anyone's ever come up. <laughs> I appreciate that. The book's probably crap, but you know, I'm going to read it anyway. Likely, yes, it's likely crap. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to reading it, looking forward to see your insights from being on the side of being on the side of failing, just like I was. So it's, I can relate. So if you can relate to it, then I think you learn a lot from more when you relate to things. Well, it sounds like you've uh, gotten your, your career back on track. You've got a Good job. whole bunch of girls in your Two, house. Five girls keep me busy. Ultimately, it sounds like you've, you've come out ahead. And so I, I think, you, yeah. unfortunately, we lost you in the beer industry, but um, you seem to be smiling in ways I didn't see you back then. So yeah. it's good. I've slept but, once or twice since then, and my back doesn't hurt nearly as much. Well, that's a win. And I don't have to throw a keg around, which is... Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing everything with us. I know, obviously, there was some, some tough stuff in there to kind of dredge up, and um, I do think it was very helpful, and there's a lot of information that's going to help yeah. you know, a lot of our listeners. Well, I hope if, if somebody learns something from any of this, that would be that would be great, because, you know, like I said, failure is not easy, but you can learn from people who have failed. I think that's, that helps you be at least one more step ahead than we were. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there. But there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon.